When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, who could honestly talk about Euripides for the rest of time, and at this rate, talk about Euripides' Helen very specifically for the rest of time. 
but don't worry, I won't. Today's conversation episode is finalizing just that, though. I spoke with C.W. Marshall, who you will hear me call Toph, who's literally written the book on Euripides' Helen. He walks us through the background of the play, the context surrounding the stories of Helen, when and why Euripides could have written it, and we even look at the other play that was performed alongside the Helen, the Andromeda, a play that doesn't survive in its entirety, but is about, well, Andromeda. But also Perseus and all of that mess. And yet, just like the Helen, it's named for the woman. It's about the woman. It's fucking fascinating, obviously. We recorded this episode back in April, just for context, so it was before I ever even opened the pages of Euripides' Helen, as you will hear me tell Toph right at the top. But now I've gone through the play for these episodes, and I love this conversation even more. One of my favorite things about having guests on to talk about Greek tragedy specifically, you know how much I love all the guests, but Greek tragedy, ugh, it's the details that I often forget about as someone who's just reading the play and not always thinking about it in terms of like the historical context, the performance, etc. So we get reminded of the masks that ancient Greek actors wore when they played these characters, the wigs that were attached to these masks, the fact that actors would play multiple roles roles, not just in a single play, but across the four plays that were performed at the annual City Dionysia, the biggest theatrical performance in Athens. Oh man, and the crane! Ugh. So a bit of context before it's mentioned in this episode, because it's just in passing. Just a reminder that during a period of ancient Greek theater, they had a literal crane, a functioning crane that would carry characters above the stage so that they could be flying. Could you even imagine? Also to explain another term used but not explained in the conversation, satyr plays. During the city Dionysia, the playwrights would put on a tetralogy. Four plays. Three were tragedies like Helen and the others that I obsess over constantly. Not always connected in terms of storyline or theme. In fact, usually not connected. The fourth play was to kind of lighten the mood after. It was a satyr play and it was shorter and comedic. Not a full-blown comedy. It's written by the tragedians, but with comedic elements. Named for satyrs, the mythological creatures. And yes, it is where we get the word satire. All right, now that you all have those bits that will come up later, oh, I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode on Helen. Learn everything I did about Euripides' play, the Helen, and the Andromeda, too. Ooh, enjoy. Conversations, exploring an alternate Helen behind the scenes of the Eidolon and Euripides' play with C.W. Marshall. So, well, we'll dive right into Helen then, too, because full disclosure, I have not yet read Euripides' Helen. You're missing Um, out. (laughs) I I looked up the Wikipedia just for this conversation and was like, oh, shit, this is amazing. And so now this is definitely going to accompany like a full retelling of the play. Awesome. 
I prefer to do that anyway, but now I'm extra excited. Uh, Yeah. Why don't you just tell me literally anything you want to about this play? (laughs) Sure. I love this play. Euripides' Helen survives to us as one of the alphabetic plays. It wasn't selected through the process of uh, centuries of review for use in the classroom or anything like this, but it's one of our uh, H through K complete works of Euripides' plays, which is why we've got all these Iphigenia plays. Um, It's just this accidental survival of one volume of a complete works of Euripides. That is one of my favorite things. Sorry, just to, that's, I think that that is the most exciting thing about Euripides. I always forget what letters it is. So thank you. H through K. Well, it's, it's, it's Ada. Ada through Kappa. Yeah. H in the way that there is no H, but uh, yeah, that's just so, it's just so mind boggling to me. I love Euripides generally, but just the fact that the reason we have so many is this like complete fluke is my favorite thing. So I'm thrilled that this is part of it. And among these uh, alphabetic plays, we get Heracles and we get Helen. And mm. those two are the are the pinnacles of Euripidean playwriting as far as I'm concerned. So I'm really happy to be talking about Helen, which is uh, a play that I spent a lot of time with. Um, I first directed it uh, back in the 90s. And it's a play that's sort of been haunting me, partly because Helen haunts me. Helen as a figure of myth is interesting because of the different ways that she gets to be presented, sometimes as a passive object being passed between men, sometimes as a victim, sometimes as an agent of her destruction, and sometimes as an agent of other people's destruction. And uh, the version of Euripides, uh, the version that Euripides gives us is just this magnificent theatrical creation of a woman who um, has all sorts of things said about her, none of which are true. Sounds like Helen. And I, I think that's, <laughs> but I, I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, uh, maybe today as well. And so uh, I, I'm happy to start with the background myth. Um, we know that the myth originated with Stesichorus, a lyric poet, um, and Stesichorus had this idea that it wasn't Helen who went to Troy, but that it was an Eidolon, a ghost or a phantom Helen who went to Troy that everyone fought over, um, while in fact Helen remained faithful to her husband in Egypt. And Euripides took this Stesichorean Helen and turned it into a full dramatic reality. So here we have a play set in North Africa, set in Egypt with Helen, where she's been sitting around for you know, 17 years or whatever it's been, sort of waiting for someone to rescue her. And uh, no one ever does. And over the course of the play, she takes agency for her own rescue. But she also learns about what the Phantom Helen's been doing, and she meets up with her husband. That's just so, I mean, I've learned about this bit of Helen's story fairly recently because I did a a bit of a deep dive episode on her just as a character um, back in the winter, I think. Everything blurs together. Um, But I had never heard of that idea. And thankfully, I've gotten my hands on the early Greek myths, the two volume set. uh, And that is like where I've learned so many different things because it's like one of the only places you can as a non-academic find reference to to Sycharis because exactly yeah 
uh, notoriously, Stazikris was the name that I misspelled six times in my PhD dissertation. <laughs> um, it was the first correction that I was offered. So, so <laughs> we're confessing great secrets here, are we? I, I, I think no one but uh, Alex Garvey and I knew those things uh, until this moment. Um, but, <laughs> but no. So the the, the notion of Helen in Egypt. Um, allows Euripides a fair bit of room to play. We've got a reputation mm. for Helen sitting in the audience in 412. We all think we know what Helen is and who she's about. And Euripides gives us this counter Helen who in fact becomes a Penelope figure. And I oh. think that's uh, one of the really interesting ways to read her is that uh in Euripides's play, we're measuring her not against, or not only against other versions of Helen, but for the faithful wife of the hero at Troy, Penelope is sort of the model that uh, Homer has given us, that Greek myth has given us, and Helen measures up to Penelope at every step along the way. And she doesn't have quite so many suitors, but this suitor is a little more aggressive. And Theoclymenus is trying to marry her, doesn't understand why, when he's such a strapping lad, <laughs> Helen doesn't want uh, to spend any time with her. And we really get this beautiful emphasis on marital, marital fidelity, on uh, trust, uh, that her husband is coming, and this expectation is set up. And then what's really theatrical about the play is that uh, it's then completely undercut when Menelaus does show up and he's a complete useless doof. And, <laughs> and, and she has to then rescue both of them. Amazing. So the fact that she, she, she gets to play Penelope, but uh, in as much as she is like Penelope in just so many ways, Menelaus is absolutely not Odysseus, um, and, and is failing to measure up to an Odyssean standard of heroism. That's so interesting. It feels to me so Euripidean, because uh, my favorite thing about him is just the complexity of the female characters in so many plays. But uh, that's so fascinating. And Helen is just such an interesting choice, too, just because of everything surrounding her. And then so just take this idea that, like, no, she wasn't even in Troy to begin with. I get to, like, write this whole other story about her under this pretext it's just so fascinating that like i don't know what i thought that because i've always known he'd had a play called helen and i suppose i just never considered what it would be about but it's like you gotta wonder if you have trojan women and hecuba and like so many different things and then you helen like what else are you going to say if you've already covered so many notions so it's it's really striking how little helen appears in drama she's mm. not normally thought of as a tragic figure um she does appear in trojan women and so that's three, four years before uh, this play is written. But other than that, she's appeared in satyr play. She's appeared huh. in comedy, but she hadn't been the, the, the central figure in a tragedy before. Um, and so I think that's part of why I like Heracles as well, is, is this opportunity to really make uh, fundamentally non-tragic mythological figures into a figure that is uh, asking these larger questions that tragedy likes to delve into. Um, and is doing so in a playful way and in a fun way, 
Um, but but fundamentally, I think we're seeing um, a woman who's been left alone and who is uh, left alone during wartime and is being expected to not only protect herself, but also ultimately to provide rescue. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, one of the ways that I have found really productive to read the play is actually uh, to assume that Menelaus thinks he's in a tragedy called Menelaus. <laughs> but the structure of this play is so unusual. Um, but we start off with a prologue, as we do in Euripides. Um, it's then followed by two characters speaking. In this case, it's Helen and Teucer, who's on his way back from the Trojan War, and then the chorus come on. And then the chorus leave with Helen, and we get an empty stage, 385 lines into the play. Wow. And it's it's a completely empty stage, and we're not changing location or anything. It's just they're all inside. And that's when Menelaus comes on. And Menelaus also has a prologue, and he also has a dialogue, and then the chorus come back on. So he thinks he's the star of a tragedy. And I think this meta-awareness is really sort of operating all the way through. People have been watching tragedies for many decades at this point. And so Euripides is really sort of playing with things and trying to do something new. But he comes on, he has his prologue as if this were the beginning of the play. Instead of getting to meet a Greek warrior, he meets an old housekeeper and he is unable to get into the house. He, he knocks hmm. at the door and he gets sort of shooed away with her and a broom. So there's the anticlimactic expectation planted for us in comparison to Helen being able to talk to heroes like Tucer. And then the chorus come on. And then there's, they're both on. They're both on stage and they're going to have a recognition. The recognition is coming. But for almost 600 lines, the two of them are sort of wrestling trying to work out whose play this is. (laughs) And we don't actually establish the regular rhythm of choral song, episode, choral song, episode, until like, it's like line line 1100 or so, 1106. Um, And so that's longer than some tragedies. Yeah. We're still struggling. So after we've had our two openings, we now have both of them on stage together. And... They have a series of scenes with each other and with other figures as well. It comes down to an agon, this sort of contest. But the contest isn't debating you know, the ethics of war or anything like this. It's really just who's in charge here. And Helen wins that debate, uh, that contest with her husband, even though it's formally they're both seeking access to um, the authorities in Egypt. Helen comes across as pious, as righteous, as correct. Menelaus is scheming and a failure and trying to weasel around things. And and you can tell I don't have much time for Menelaus here. It's a a great part, but (laughs) but there's one person that we like, and and that's Helen coming across very confidently and Penelopean. That's so interesting. It just feels like the exact opposite of what everyone has ever done to Helen in the rest of the sourcing. And I think that's why it's an exciting play. And yeah. so, but the fact that it's a convincing Helen, it's a familiar Helen, even though it's new, um, but it's also a Helen in charge. And, and so for me, the structure of the play really sort of 
outlines um, how unusual it is to bring Helen into a tragic narrative, but still establishes her as worthy of being a focal point in a tragic narrative um, in a way that Menelaus is not. And there are no other tragedies on Menelaus. He is completely unheroic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's just the worst. I'm always interested in... in like Helen in the Odyssey is so interesting to me because she is like this whole bizarre kind of relationship with Menelaus and this, I don't know, everything about her in that is, is so sort of special. Exactly. And there also um, there's reference to the tradition that they were both in Egypt. So this is Mm -hmm. Euripides expanding on that and adding this Zikarian element uh, to the fact that Helen has been in Egypt and Menelaus did dress up like a seal in order to try and learn things about the future. <laughs> what, is that in the play or is that somewhere? No, that's not in the play. That's in the Odyssey. That's an Odyssey book four. The, but uh, he dressed up? Oh, well, there's a lot of reference to smelly seals as they're oh, trying to get close to Proteus. Um, oh, of course. Yes. Yes. And, and so... Uh, it's it's the stinkiest bit of the Odyssey, is, <laughs> and and since you're in British Columbia, you may know that steel seals absolutely reek, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and so so, so uh, we've got that. But I, again, I think the association from Odyssey Book Four is also really programmatic for what happens in this play. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Odyssey, Proteus is in charge of Egypt. Here it's his son. In Euripides, mm. it's this, his son, Theoclymenus, um, who is otherwise unknown. And the center of the orchestra, the, right at the heart of the dancing area, is where there's the tomb of Proteus. Proteus, who's deathless in Homer, is here in a tomb. The tomb also has altar-like qualities and is confused for an altar at one point. But where Helen has set up camp is on this tomb of Proteus. And so for me, one of the another of the really interesting things about the play is the Protean elements, this sense of fluidity and of change. Not only is Helen changing from what we might expect, but the politics in Egypt are fluid. But this Protean element is something that Euripides really brings to the front. And I think the reason he's doing so is because he is basing his play on a previous dramatic narrative. Mm. And that's, that's a play by Aeschylus, which was the satyr play for the Oresteia, which is Proteus. And so in addition to Odyssey 4 being programmatic and Stesichorus being programmatic, we've also got the, the Oresteia's satyr play, Proteus, which is programmatic for what's going on on stage. And we we don't have Proteus. We've got the rest of the Oresteia. But uh, the most convincing reconstructions that I've seen um, are about the scene that we see in Odyssey 4 where Helen and Menelaus are in Egypt and they're trying to get directions home and they have to wrestle with Proteus. So I think mm-hmm. if we've got a dramatic precedent for this play, it's not a tragic precedent. It's a satyr precedent. Mm-hmm. precedent. And that, uh, I think, 
helps explain the tone that we've got going on here. We are tragifying what had been a satyr drama, but we're also playing with it. And that protean element, I think, uh, reads well in that respect, too. Mm-hmm. I'm just taking this all in and trying to get my cat not to purr too loudly into the microphone. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, yeah, it's so interesting. I, I'm so fascinated by, I mean, obviously it's the most interesting thing about Greek myth, but like the things that we don't know that we don't know and the things that we don't know. <laughs> you know yeah. here we know we don't we know we don't know Aeschylus's Proteus yeah but the little things that we know about it for me fit really well with what we're seeing here mm-hmm. and it also then suggests that maybe uh we know the play was produced in 412 BCE we know that because of the parody in Aristophanes and the Thesmophoriagesi mm. but there's another play also from the same uh year that is uh, also parodied in Thesmo, which is Andromeda. Mm. And so Andromeda and Helen were both presented at the as part of the same set of plays. Mm-hmm. For me, I think it's possible to read some of the elements of what we know about Andromeda and see it engaging with the themes in Helen as well. So in Andromeda, <laughs> so excited. <laughs> well, and Andromeda is the story of Perseus coming home, and you know he's decapitated the Gorgon, and uh, he's he's flying home, and he sees a woman chained to a rock, and he thinks she'll make a good ancestor of all the Argives, um, and so he rescues her. Half the play, it seems, once he rescues her from the sea monster, half the play is spent trying to negotiate marriage rights. Um, and it's like she's got a rival lover and there's, you know, it's her uncle, but they're uh, trying to, it, it's just basically, can I marry your daughter is the second half of the play. But in the first half of the play, we get all sorts of really exciting things. We get first off Perseus flying in on the crane oh, and we've got these lines. Uh, we see him, see her. She's like a statue and he falls in love at first sight. And we actually get the the, the phrase in Greek, fall in love. Uh, hmm. And so here we have young love at first sight being contrasted with the 17-year or 20-year-old marriage of Helen and Menelaus. Um, in, in, if in Helen we've got a completely capable Helen and a completely inept Menelaus, uh, maybe the hero who comes in and spends the entire time uh, dicking around trying to make a good deal with her father isn't quite as heroic as we want it to be. Um, And maybe Andromeda is strong and a little more independent than she might've been beforehand in previous versions of the myth. But also I'm going to say, I think there's at least a chance uh, it can't be proven, but there's, there's a chance that Andromeda too was based on a satyr play. Hmm. That it too was taking a, site, a a myth from a satyr play, Sophocles' Andromeda, which may or may not have been a satyr drama. Gotcha. But it's certainly written in the awareness of Sophocles' play, and others have suggested that Sophocles' play may have been satyr drama. So that would be another cool sort of link. And yeah. then we start going with the protean fluid stuff. I'm sorry, I get very excited with this. No. But the I, protean yeah. fluid stuff 
for Helen with the fixity and the statues and the immobility of her looking like a statue when she's chained to the rock and then the Gorgon turning everyone to stone. So you get a nice sort of uh, fluid versus, uh, you know, water versus stone happening there between the two plays. And both in North Africa. Both in North Africa as well. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Do we know what the third play would have been? We don't. And we don't know what the sadder play was. I'll, Uh. I'll say when I... Uh, when I started my book on Euripides Helen, I wanted to uh, I wanted to argue that they were both Lanaya plays, that these were the only two plays that were in this set, mm. and because at the Dionysia you had a tetralogy, three tragedies and a satyr play, but at the Lanaya you just had a pair of tragedies. Interesting. And so I thought here I could argue for confidently for a Linnea play over the course of writing the book I talked myself out of that idea mm. but uh, I do I, I do strongly suspect we've got Linnea plays we just don't know which ones they are and so you know we yeah. assume that they're all parts of sets of four I don't think we've got evidence for that and the fact that uh, some of our plays might be Linnea plays might explain some of the tonal shifts that we see some mm-hmm. of the unusual uh, features that are otherwise unexplained. That's really interesting. What what was the Lanaya? I, I don't so, know what it is at all. So no, that's okay. Um, there were a bunch of dramatic festivals in Attica, and that, yeah. uh, the Dionysia was was the main one that took place in March. Um, the city Dionysia, the Greater Dionysia. Um, it was notionally when the ports opened. Uh, and so we mm. were told at various points that there are uh, foreigners in the audience there. But there's also um, a winter festival, which is also a Dionysian festival called the Lanaya. Um, we think it took place in the same theater, though I think a good case can be made for it having its own separate theater that we just don't know of. But uh, many of the comedies that we have by Aristophanes were originally Lanaya plays. And so uh, Lysistrata was a Linnaea play, for example, but Thesmophoriadusai in the same year was a Dionysia play. Mm. So, we, uh, so we've got comedies that come from the Linnaea. The, there were tragedies. Um, traditionally, in 20th century scholarship, I think it was sort of assumed that playwrights would you know, start out in the Linnaea and get promoted to the... Mm. To, to, to the Dionysia, or they do local rural Dionysia festivals, and there were also rural Dionysia festivals that had dramatic components to them. Um, all of these have been fully documented in uh, the work of Eric Chapo and Peter Wilson. Um, but we know that there were uh, these, let's call them smaller festivals, but I think all the playwrights are applying for all of them and just taking what they can um yeah it's the way working artists are <laughs> yeah <laughs> they take, exactly they take the gigs they can get yeah. but also we actually are really lucky we've got a couple of anecdotes um that are all later but they are all set in fifth century athens which uh talk about how for example every time euripides puts on a play at the piraeus socrates walks down and goes to see it hmm <laughs> 
but just the assumption that on a fairly regular basis at the rural Dionysia at the Piraeus at the port, there's going to be a, a an opportunity to see a Euripides play. That's pretty groovy. And it doesn't mean that that's the only place that play was ever performed. Maybe it had already been as part of a t- tragic tetralogy. Maybe it had been part of a winning tragic, tragic tetralogy. Or maybe it had been saddled with some dogs of plays and this was the good one and he's trying to give it a re-airing. The truth is we don't know those sorts of mechanics about the dramatic competitions. Mm-hmm. But just asking the question to me opens up a lot of possibilities. So if the question is, you know, if in a given year we've got three tragic competitors, each writing three tragedies at the Dionysia, at the city Dionysia, and two tragic competitors at the Lanaya, each doing two tragedies. That means that out of every 13 tragedies, if we leave aside the rural Dionysia as well, which would make the numbers even better, but out of every 13 mm-hmm. tragedies, four of them aren't Dionysia plays. Mm-hmm. And I, we, we've got <laughs> more than that um, that we don't have festivals for. We know the festivals for some um, because of the nature of the the Discalia, the victory records. We know that, mm-hmm. um, and the Discalia privileged the Dionysia. So right. we can tell certain plays were Dionysia winners or losers. But the ones that we don't have might be from the Dionysia, might be from another festival, and we just yeah. don't know. Um, and so uh, it might not be four out of 13, but we've got 30 tragedies here, and I'm suspecting that a couple of them might be non-Dionysia plays. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it 30 that survive of Euripides? No. Uh, or no? Well, depending on how we want to reckon these things, right? Gotcha. We've got yeah. six Aeschylus plays uh, plus Prometheus. We've got seven Sophocles plays. We've got uh, 10 uh, select Euripidean plays that include Alcestis, which was a fourth place play, um, and include... Uh, Andromache, which we're told doesn't appear in the records, which I think probably means in the mm-hmm. Dionysia records. I think that's a good candidate for a non-Dionysia play. Um, and then we've got nine alphabetic plays, which include Kiklops, which is also a satyr play. So right. depending on uh, Rhesus is in there, it's not by Euripides. So depending on which ones you want to pull out, you know, you get a number in the high 20s or yeah. early 30s, depending on what exactly it is you're 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 asking. Then there's the fragmentary plays, too. And we've got yeah. good evidence on lots of fragmentary plays. And Andromeda is one of the ones that we can say more about than many. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan... Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. 
you're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As I was saying, I originally thought I was going to be talking about Helen and Andromeda as Linnea plays. I talked myself yeah. out of that, but uh, but recognizing that they did get staged together, I think really does invite these sort of looking across, and even if there's not direct narrative parallels, seeing the way themes would interact with each other is a productive line of research. Yeah, I love that they're both named for the women in them, even though the men in them are people like Menelaus and Perseus. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I think Euripides, uh, well, I, I think we know that Euripides doesn't have a female chorus. or We've got no evidence of a, sorry, of a male chorus after 418 or whatever it is. Really? Um, that, that he starts really focusing on female chorality in the last 15 years of his life. Um, now it's always 
female chorality presented by male singers and dancers. Right. And so it's there, there's a ventriloquism going on there uh, and arguably a queerness going on there. But I think that the the emphasis on female choruses is something that, that comes through really clearly in, mm-hmm. in his later plays. Taking notes of this just as an explanation <laughs> for my movements. <laughs> That's so interesting. He's always been my favorite because of the women in the plays, but hearing that is just, I mean, obviously just adds to it. Um, when it comes to him as a as an actual person, do we know much about I mean, I know we have the Thesmophoria Zeusa where you know, there's like the, oh, you're, but he's, I forget what the, whatever the thing is that Aristophanes says that makes people today even say that Euripides was not what we would call a feminist. That just makes me go like, what? how do we know anything about what they actually thought? But yeah, <laughs> if you've been commenting well, on you've, it, you, yeah. you, you've, you've just, <laughs> hmm, how do I comment on this? Uh, <laughs> I I, I'm going to refer to your three-part uh, trachinii uh <laughs> session that you've just had, uh, because I'm going to say, if, if we're looking for proto-feminism, I'm looking to mm. Deanira and the presentation of Deanira there, which is just so sympathetic. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, the presentation of Helen seems to be you know, very much within the heteronormative expectations of Athens. He's not challenging things in that way, but he mm-hmm. is willing to uh, really play up how strong Helen is and has been in terms of ongoing um, experience. Like it's, it's, it's not traumatic. It's not a rape narrative the way that some tragedies have in their background, but there is this implied threat all the way along. Um, many of his plays sort of, I think from 416 on um, from just before Trojan women, um, we see what is sometimes disparagingly presented as melodrama or as tragic comedy, though I don't like that phrase. I think we're allowed to laugh in tragedies and, and that that's okay. But certainly the emotion is heightened in many of these plays and the audience, the presumptively male Athenian citizen audience is being invited to think about victimhood. And that's one of the things that melodrama does. Melodrama asks us to see ourselves as vulnerable, to see how to respond to vulnerable situations that make us vulnerable. And so the constant um, pressure that Theoclimenus applies to Helen, her isolation, um, her uh, being away from home uh, with only a handful of servants that got kidnapped by pirates years later, that uh, constitute the chorus. Um, We see this heightened pathos and this um, encouragement towards identification through victimhood or with victimhood, uh, which is characteristic of melodrama, which can be played sappily, um, it can be played without consequences, but I think the consequences here, um, it can be a serious play. It can also be a funny play. And mm-hmm. both those things can exist at the same time. I think it's very serious about her plight. Um, she doesn't get jokes in it, but the situation does become ridiculous. And through this, she becomes um, 
in my mind, a, a more interesting and a stronger figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I have so much trouble uh, not just repeatedly saying that's so interesting. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's a constant struggle for me. Uh, but it, Euripides just seems to have such an interest in looking at women as real people. And reading Trichinii has changed my you know, initial, I haven't read a ton of Sophocles, basically, but I've always just gone to Euripides for women. But yeah, reading Trichinia, I definitely changed that on me. I was like, okay, this one's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I have a, I have a favorite Sophocles, I guess. Fine. Um, <laughs> you but picked it, the right one. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I have, I mean, granted, I've mostly just read uh, Oedipus and the varied Oristia related plays when it comes to Sophocles, but <sighs> Dianera is just so interesting. Yeah. Um, but it, Euripides just seems to like, I think what I like about his women is that they te- they're they quite varied. Like, you know, Medea obviously has a lot of really awful things that she does. I wouldn't say that her characteristics in, in Euripides' play make her that awful. Obviously her actions do. But she's still presented in this like incredibly sympathetic way or where you just, you even though you know it's awful, you understand why she feels like she has to do it. Not why she has to do it, but why she feels like she does kind of thing. And it's just, I'm now I'm fascinated by the idea of what, how he would have treated Andromeda too, because she is a character who has very little agency or just like generally very little of a voice in mythology. She's incredibly important to the genealogy but in the actual myths, like we don't really know anything about her as a person. We just know that she's the mother of everything. So uh, we one of the things that we do have access to is some vase paintings. And mm. we don't want to map uh, a particular vase painting necessarily onto individual plays. And there are problematic issues with doing that. But having said that, I think that there's good grounds for associating a set of plays, uh, sorry, a set of pots from the 430s with Sophocles' Andromeda, mm. and a set of vases that we see from the early 4th century with Euripides' Andromeda, in that both of these sets present visual iconography that is consistent with itself. And so we can start to see maybe differences in the way that Andromeda was presented in Sophocles and how she was presented in Euripides. And so, for example, uh, in the vases from the 430s, which, as I say, may be inspired by um, Sophocles' play, she's dressed in barbarian trousers. So exposed, she's wearing trousers, so clearly not Greek. She's uh, being tied to posts by uh, these uh, black African uh, slaves who uh, are exposing her for the sea monster. But uh, we see a very non-Greek woman. Mm -hmm. In contrast to that, we have the vases that start appearing after 412, in which uh, she is not being tied to posts, 
she's being put in the mouth of a cave, which on stage would be the skinny door, um, mm-hmm. the central skinny door, but she's significantly in a Greek dress. And so we see her as the princess, the Greek princess she's going to become, rather than as the barbarian Ethiopian princess that she had been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, Euripides's visual presentation of her seems to be more prospective. It looks forward to her as the ancestor of the Argives rather than um, playing up her Ethiopian connections. Mm-hmm. And so while well, in uh, Augustan lyric or we, we, in, in elegy, we can have, um, we can talk about her blackness. I don't think, while it's available to Euripides, mm-hmm. he doesn't give her a black mask. Mm-hmm. Doesn't uh, he, he presents her as a Greek princess, and that's a choice that was made in that production um, mm-hmm. in order to connote certain things. Though, of course, so, uh, modern creator would maybe make different choices looking at even the same fragments now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and the you know the context is so different from how exactly. it's hard to separate ourselves from the context now versus exactly. He, he, yeah, the emphasis was probably just the Greekness, the you know. But at the same anything. time, we can look at mm-hmm. the way that the slaves are presented in the Sophoclean vases, mm-hmm. or what I'm calling the Sophoclean vases, and I think the choice is there. It just wasn't a choice that was adopted in Euripides's play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but even just thinking about what we're doing with masks, how different then is the Andromeda mask from the Helen mask? You're are right. they both? Pre- you know, if, if Andromeda is a young greek appearing woman able to be married instantly what does helen look like is she mm-hmm. is the most beautiful face the face of a young woman or of a mature woman mm. she's been sitting in egypt for 17 years but do we start giving her gray hair is is i think a legitimate choice um that has to be wrestled with uh, yeah. and how do we represent the face of beauty when what we're working with is, I'll say, a pretty uh, coarse palette of choices. You know, you, you, you've got generational choices, but for many people in a world before corrective lenses, what they're seeing is a slightly blurry face. Um, yeah. So what choices do you make for her hair? What choices do you make for her costume? Um, but how do you act Helen? And I think a lot of it's going to be in the bearing. Uh, it, it's the way she walks, the way she stands. Um, does she stand humbled or is she strong and defiant? And everything about Euripides' Helen suggests strength. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it's hard to think about just how much time would have passed. And so, yeah, the, this, the decision on on what to make her look like because... Like obviously she was also old enough to have a fairly old child by the time she left Troy. Yeah, no, she she she's forty or whatever by the time yeah. we see her in the play, maybe her late thirties. Um, so old. I I, I know. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, Greek masks, I believe, generally presented for adults a sort of young face, uh, middle aged faced and an elderly faced. Right, um, a mature face. I shouldn't say middle age, but but 
and and pretty much in every play you can look and you can say which generation a character falls into yeah you, you know whether they are 18 and just coming of age Orestes they are returning as triumphant warriors or at the end of the Trojan War mature faces or they are elderly Tiresias yeah yeah and 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 just being able to map men and women onto those three generational choices I think points to some of the um, real trouble cases that do come up what do you do with Jocasta Mm. If Oedipus is a mature man, you don't want Jocasta to look old, mm-hmm. but she's still got to be old enough to be his mother. Yeah. Um, and and so there is an interesting case that I don't have a clear answer for, but I think um, thinking about her in terms of masking choices, you know, we're allowed to make special masks, but but there is a case of of a woman who maybe is presented as mature and as the same age as Oedipus, the same mm-hmm. age band as Oedipus, even though we know that Oedipus is, let's say, 15 years younger or whatever the mm-hmm. normative dis- difference would be for a mother in yeah. Greece. It, I love having conversations like this because I don't spend enough of my time thinking about the way they would have been performed because it it just, you know, it doesn't come naturally when you're just reading the play. Like I I think about it um, and I'm like aware of all of these things, but I I often don't harp on it in the episodes. And I think sometimes it is so interesting to think about these things. And so for instance, like in my conversation for the Trachinii, um, in discussing how that was performed, Amy Pistone was telling me that, you know, basically as soon as she started saying, Oh, you know, we think that probably maybe the the same character, the same actor played Dianera and Heracles. And it's like, as soon as she just said the same actor, my brain went, Oh my God, played Dianera and Heracles. And it's just these things that I don't think about, but they add so much. And then as soon as you start saying things like, yeah, the, you know, the masking and these different age groups and, and all the different things that you don't think about until you do. And it just adds so much to imagining how they would have been performed or or Perseus flying in on the crane. And then I'm reminded once more that they had a crane to fly people in. And it's just so cool. <laughs> exactly. I, well, yeah. I, I think the example in Trachinii, uh, within a given play, I think that's the best acting challenge that tragedy has given us uh, playing those two roles. Yes. Um, though I'll say if it was originally presented as part of a tetralogy, we mm. have to multiply the expectations on that actor even mm. further, right? They're playing a whole range of characters and everyone is doing that regardless. Uh, yeah. you're, no one is playing the same character in all the plays, even in a narratively connected trilogy uh, or tetralogy like the Oresteia. Mm. Um, I suspect the same actor plays Agamemnon and then Orestes. Right. But so father and son share voices and have similar moments that echo one another. But at the same time, even Clytemnestra eventually plays uh, in, in the Eumenides plays Clytemnestra's ghost and then plays Athena. Right. And so you get two kinds of androgyny being represented in those characters there. And then, played a role in Proteus the Satyr play and 
maybe that same actor also got to play Clytemnestra's sister Helen, which would also be sort of cool. Yeah, yeah, I all of that. <laughs> the 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 Dianera and and Heracles is just so it, it feels so perfect because of the way the play is structured. Yeah. Like, and then on top of that, just imagining the range and just the acting involved in both of them is so interesting and it opens up so many questions that yes yeah, yeah i mean oh, that, we're that talking about helen <laughs> i know i spent so much time with the trachinii lately <laughs> like i'm there in it uh yeah it, and helen just helen being pre- presented as as a strong character as a basically just as not an inadvertent villain is so interesting to me because I, th- I think that's right. One of the interesting things actually just picking up on playing multiple roles is that one of the things that this play does that Euripides Helen does um, is that both Helen and Menelaus get a costume change. Mm. And so partway through the play, once they do establish that it's a play about Helen, not the tragedy of Menelaus, <laughs> um, they both get new costumes and new masks in that the hairstyle changes. So she pretends to be in mourning for her supposedly dead husband. This is the trick that they're going to use to escape from Egypt is they're going to say they need a ship to bury her husband. And meanwhile, they'll be canoodling uh, on the prow as they sail away. Um, But Helen goes into the house. She cuts her hair she puts on black and comes out in mourning. It's pretend mourning, but this is the costume she's going to have at the end of the play. So whatever she looked like before, mm-hmm. we get to, she gets to change, but stay the same. Mm-hmm. And that's very rare in tragic performance that, you know, we, we even, we need to have the chorus say, uh, I'm going into the house or Helen's going into the house. She's going to get ready for, uh, for the pretend uh, f- funeral and then is going to come back and then she comes out. It is me, Helen. I have put on my clothes. You know, <laughs> like, it's a big deal because normally when you change costume and mask, you're becoming someone else. Right, Helen, I was going to ask. Helen, yeah. in this protean play, changes into a new protean, a, a, a new Helen. And Menelaus too. He's shipwrecked when he washes up. We, I, I like to think of Odysseus... Um, when he meets Nesikea, uh and you know he's hiding behind a branch and he's naked and all that, uh, that's the image that we get of Menelaus washing ashore in rags, looking pretty hopeless. But Helen does him a solid, says we've got to dress him up nice in fancy armor, and so he goes in and he gets fancy armor, and maybe he even gets a new uh, wig on his mask so that his hair is combed, um, but he too gets to transform into the Menelaus that he should be instead of this failed pseudo-Odyssean Menelaus. And so both of them become someone else who is the same before they go on and play a messenger or a god at the end. Right. So there's still role-sharing going on, but both of them get this protean moment to become a new version of themselves. And and I like I like the I like the new version of Helen. 
Yeah, I'm just taking it all in again. <laughs> and, and you know, if we if we want to put a, a modern, you know, feminist spin on this, the new version of Helen is one that's without Menelaus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we know from Odyssey Four, they're not happy when they go back, and maybe, uh, maybe she'll go up and and have a better uh, post play life or post uh, post Trojan War life. Uh, Wouldn't be hard in, in this play, exactly. <laughs> yeah, do we? And now, of course, by the time this episode airs, I will have already done an episode on it. So my question is probably invalid. But do we get a sense of uh, her motivations in leaving Sparta in the first place in Euripides? Does he kind of comment on that at all? He really doesn't. Um, mm. He the focus is on the substitution of the idolum of of this mm. ghost image. So Paris takes the ghost. And, uh, and so she is not, um, she is not unfaithful in any way. Her fidelity to Menelaus, even if he's a putz, um, is, is, it's, is solid. Um, Mm -hmm. the rumors and the scandals associated with Helen are all on to Phantom Helen. Mm -hmm. They're, they're not to be attributed to her. And there's a big, uh, sophistic tension between whether your name can travel without your body, whether, uh, you know, your actions, do they need to be real? If people are saying that you've done these things, isn't that just as bad? So this notion of uh, rumor and report and assumptions of wrongdoing are all really explored. Um, So we have, the real and the ghost. We have the name and the action. We have the faithful and the unfaithful. We have the Odyssean Helen, who is like Penelope, and the Iliadic Helen, who is uh, like what the Eidolon has done. Yeah. Yeah, there's no other way to describe Like, <laughs> I feel like Helen in the Iliad has become such an archetype of that, that it's like, yeah, the Iliadic one that Helen, who's like Helen, like there is <laughs> no one else who who gets kind of that those kinds of characteristics put on her. And there's still uh, a strength in that. But, I, but again, yeah. I think that the, the aspect for melodrama um, and this focus on victimhood, like Helen isn't responsible in this play for the rumors that have circulated about her. Mm-hmm. All men want to see her because of the rumors that have circulated about her. Yeah. We in the audience want to see her because of the rumors that, you know, what whatever stories we associate with her beauty, her sexuality. No one is thinking, ah, oh, Helen, what a fine mother she is. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're focusing on other aspects of her. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that that um, that recognition of the power of the word uh, to destroy reputations, to hurt people, is something that um, Euripides is investigating in this play. Mm-hmm. Especially to to so explicitly connect her with Penelope, I think is just so powerful because, I mean, Penelope is it, you know, in that time of... of best women most most i don't know i guess just the ideal woman and then so to make of all people helen who is sort of the opposite 
to then turn her into a Penelope figure is so meaningful. That's and, I I re- I really like that aspect of it. And yeah, I, you know, Penelope stands out for me as being you know, this sort of strong core in the Odyssey, um, and that I can think positive or neg- negative things about Odysseus, but but Penelope's strength comes through, and I mm-hmm. see the same thing in this play. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious about this idea of of Helen as an eidolon, a ghost. Is that something that comes up much elsewhere? Like, it's not. I mean, I'm familiar with the word, but mostly because of the like the magazine, if that's the right word for it, yeah. versus versus actually like it as a concept. It, it was a concept, as I say. We we, we attribute it just to Zacharias, mm-hmm. um, and and to the Palinode. Uh, after Euripides, it doesn't seem to have had a long uh, life, but it really sort of is encapsulated for us in this one play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the you know ghost is sort of the wrong word because mm-hmm. we know that she's tangible. Yeah, we know that she has been physically held and touched. And in this play, while we don't see the ghost, we do get a messenger report of the of someone coming on stage saying the Adelon turned into a cloud and flew away. <sighs> but before she does, before the, the Eidolon does, uh, it speaks. And so we know that it's tangible. We know that it's capable of expression. Arguably it's capable of thought. I'm going to say there, there is sort of a, a tragic uh, Frankenstein aspect mm, mm-hmm. to this as well where we can pity the Eidolon conceivably. I don't think Euripides invites us to especially, but but I don't think it's a far leap. Um, mm-hmm. But the the Eidolon's last words are absolving Helen of blame. Mm. Uh, and essentially repeating the Sisychorean idea that that story was not true. Um, so uh, So as the cloud disperses into the sky. The final words of the person that they've been fighting over for so many years is, "It, I wasn't her." Really, um, and and it's just pointing at the real Helen. Wow. Yeah. So so you know we, I'll say there there, you know if if we go back a few years, you know, we. We have both lived in a time where people have launched, people from the West have launched a war in the Middle East on the rumors that there is uh, something valuable in Mm -hmm. what we call the Middle East. Um, Mm -hmm. And that has evaporated. And whether it was the weapons of mass destruction or Helen, a woman of men's destruction. We've got uh, these WMDs that we're fighting Trojan Wars for. Um, and and there was a time when, I'll say, that sort of analysis was, was current and uh, was hip. It, it feels a little dated to say it now, but I, I think that um, then going to war on false pretenses is something that Euripides, writing the Palestinian War, <laughs> may have had a lived experience of. Um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that that we can now perhaps uh, imagine ourselves more fully 
as part of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, that's, I don't even know. It's just so unique. I, I suppose I'm most kind of um, surprised, I suppose, but that this aspect of Helen hasn't become bigger in the wider understanding of the Trojan War and the story of Helen, just because she is this idea that has become so enormous in, in, you know, in academia, but like well beyond, right? Like Helen is like one of the most common names we all know from, from Greek mythology. And yet this, this whole notion of her, of, you know, wasn't even about her in the first place, or, you know, she was like a, a copy. It, It just adds so much and it, it makes her so much more interesting because we we can't just make her the scapegoat. It's all her fault when even, I mean, Eidolon aside, the idea that it's all her fault is absurd. But yeah, this is just so much more explicit of like, it just is so unique in mythology too. Like there's not other examples of a fake person, like a copy. It feels so technologically like high tech too. I, I, I don't I think know. The, te- the technological aspect is an interesting one um, because it does require some innovations mm-hmm. in this way. It requires the gods to operate in a particular way that uh, they haven't done previously in order to create a duplicate. It's exceptional the same way that um Zeus disguising himself as Amphitro in order to uh, have sex with uh, Alchemini is, um, you know, the only time that he has sex in the form of a human being. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he 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 prefers swans and bulls, Um, and so uh, we've got the uh, you know this unexpected. anomaly but the anomaly mm-hmm. is focusing around a really central figure uh either helen or, or heracles mm-hmm. um in, in in modern times hd uh the poet has has done things with helen as well um mm. that, that that you know so it has been picked up from time to time but it's not um it's not a main mythological thread i i, I think uh our minds like single narrative lines and we want to reconcile mm-hmm. Um, inconsistencies. We care about canonicity and deviations from the canon and whether a, a version is in canon or not. Um, and I think, you know, Star Wars films and extended universe issues have, have exacerbated that so that that language is now so automatic for people over the past 45 years that, um, 40 years, I guess, uh, I'm not good on math. No, 45. 77. Uh, yeah. yeah. 45 years uh, has been, um, you know, it, we're, we're so used to uh, thinking in those terms. Is that in continuity? Is it out of continuity? Euripides doesn't care about that. Euripides wants no. to tell a good story and all of them are true. And yeah. the some get picked up. Um, his version of Medea got picked up. Yeah, and got replicated by other playwrights and other artists, overwriting previous Medeas. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, his Oedipus didn't get picked up. Sophocles's did, um, and so I think you know displacing 
the Homeric understanding of Helen is no easy task. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, we, as I say, just by complete flute, because we've got this Ada through Kappa uh, volume of a complete works, we can say so much more about the possibility of Helen mm-hmm. and the possibility of what she can mean and who she can be to uh, the Athenian society. And from that, we can get to what she can mean for us today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we can, by, you know, him using this to Sycharis, we, we get a source that wouldn't, that is not normally, you know, well, um, I don't even know the word I want, but it's not a common, he's not yeah. a common source. Yeah, well, Sycharis doesn't survive complete, and so we've only got a couple of fragments, and, and so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, we, but through Euripides, we're able to hear of this thing that did exist, which is, you know, one of the thrilling things about working with Greek mythology generally is finding or is sort of speculating on where certain people are picking up their ideas if we don't have, you know, the the basis for them. Exactly. Um, yeah. And and Helen is just so ripe for it. She's just the perfect person to to have this alternative story to just I sort of give her a sympathetic nature. Um yeah. Oh, just Euripides. I love him. <laughs> Well, is there anything more you'd like to share about <laughs> our Helen? <laughs> no, I'm having a lot of fun. This is really great. I'm glad. Yeah. I, this is my favorite thing. I just learn yeah. so much every time. <laughs> no, I, 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 it, it's a fascinating play. I, I like thinking about Helen in relationship to Andromeda. I think that that's mm-hmm. productive. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I just don't know, I'm sure someone does know, um, but uh, one of the neat things about Andromeda is the fact that everybody becomes a constellation at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we, we know that Andromeda is a constellation. We know that Perseus is a constellation. And so that's sort of cool. So this notion of catastorism, that there, you're going to become a star at, at the end of uh, the narrative. And there's a lot of catastorisms. We know that you know, we, we, we get you know, the, the, the bear narratives and, mm-hmm. and you know various mythographers particularly the roman mythographers tell mm-hmm. stories about so and so becoming a star and and the metamorphoses is filled with these sorts of narratives but when you mm-hmm. look up at the sky at night half the sky is filled up at least in our hemisphere half the sky is filled up with constellations from this story mm-hmm. so it's not that one figure becomes a constellation, and that's the memorialization. But we've got uh, Perseus, we've got uh, Pegasus, we've got Cassiopeia, yeah. we've got uh, Cepheus, we've got even even the sea monster uh, Cetus sits below the horizon and sort of pops up in the northern hemisphere, um, sort of like it's rising out from the waves. Uh, but but the fact that we've got six constellations tied to this one story. I don't know what prompted that, yeah. Um, but it's got to be around this time. It's going to be uh-huh. sometime in the fifth or fourth century, before the zodiacal, zodiacal, zodiacal. <laughs> the, after the zodiac got added, um, <laughs> words we've never said aloud. Uh, right. <laughs> but it, it's it's before the Greeks have taken on 
the zodiac, but mm. after they've started identifying constellations, someone just decides to paint the sky with Andromeda stories. And I think that's fantastic too. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. Like both her parents even. Exactly. Um, I do have to question the Pegasus though, because I've I'm it's one of my things that I harp on that I think it's only like a Roman coin or something is the first time yeah, no, I, 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 writing him. Exactly. No, I, 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 I should back away from that. No, uh, I just wanted to no, you are you you are right. <laughs> no, you are right. Uh I shock about it so much. But poor Bellerophon. But exactly. Well but, you know, <laughs> Imagine being Bellerophon, though. You know, he, he had a Euripides play. He had two Euripides plays as well. Poor guy. And and we just think of him as a second-rate Perseus, but he's uh, he 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 had tragedies in which he's flying around uh, in the four mm twenties. -hmm. Um, and and again, we can date that because we know of the parodies of it in Aristophanes. Oh, but, really? But uh, because we know the date of peace. We know that Euripides' uh, play with Bellerophon flying around was before that. And so mm. it's likely to be from the 420s. So fun. That's so yeah. interesting. I, I, my, one of my like just go-tos is Bellerophon's the only one who wrote Pegasus, just to share it with No, you, I, 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 I think <laughs> I have insisted on that as well. I was just being lazy there. Oh, no, it's fair. It's more than fair. I wasn't trying to trip you up. Just like my own, like, oh, do you have information that I don't? No, or, no I've got yeah. none. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> this has been so much fun. Thank you so no, much. No, me for too. Sorry, I was, I was just making sure that I did have all the constellations. I don't think I missed any out, but maybe I no, did. No, yeah, please. But, but Cepheus, yeah. Cassiopeia, Andromeda, Perseus, Catus, maybe it's just five. I mean, that's so many, though, out yes. of all of them, because so few, I mean, obviously there's a ton of constellations with all the different associations, but yeah, I mean, I certainly can't think of another single story. Like the second got best you've so got many, there yeah. is like, yeah, I mean, Heracles labors and the Zodiac, sure. But yeah. I mean, even that it's very different. It has a very different feel. And well, the Zodiac's family. coming in from the from the Near East, and it's, yeah. it's drawing on Babylonian yeah. associations. And we just get the I, my favorite thing about that is the story of Cancer the Crab. I did a whole series explaining them and just got to because I'm a Cancer and I was like got to Cancer. I'm like it is the least exciting and also the most enjoyable story. <laughs> it's wonderful. There we are. Uh, well, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. This is so much fun. Um, is there anything you want to share with my listeners in terms of following you anywhere or anything? At Tophicles on Twitter. It's a very good Twitter handle. Thank you. <laughs> uh nerds 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 how i love conversation episodes how i love talking about euripides and greek tragedy broadly how i wish i could travel back in time and watch one of these performances or speak with euripides and ask him every burning question that sits in my mind at all times but since I can't, I'm very glad I get to be able to talk with these authors and scholars who have at least some of the answers that I don't. It's so wonderful and interesting getting this context and history and background. It adds so much to our understanding of these plays and how they would have been performed. They're so much more than the stories found within them. And I'm just so glad that academics are here to add all of that to my episodes. Just, man, it's awesome. I'm perpetually thrilled at how many incredibly smart people will join me on this show to teach me and you these intricacies fucking love it 
So huge thank you to Toph, better known as C.W. Marshall, if you want to look for his book on the Helen, which is called The Structure and Performance of Euripides' Helen. Just huge thanks for joining me on the show. It was so much fun. My job is so much fun. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Ugh. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv, and I love this shit very much. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.